0: Hi, I'm Destiny Birdsong, and welcome to Ladyland.
1: Think about your closest friend. Maybe you know where she works, but do you know what she does all day? Do you know her job title? Do you know what she studied in school? Turns out, I didn't. So, I made a podcast to find out. Welcome to Ladyland. I'm your host, Kim Baldwin. This is a conversation with women from all walks of life and different backgrounds. It's funny at times, serious at times, but always honest. This is Lady Land. Put me down, put me down easy. I'm a cracked play. Put me down, put me down easy. I'm a cracked play. Hi, Destiny. Welcome to Ladyland. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. If you don't mind, I like to have my guests introduce themselves. Will you tell people who you are and just a little bit about about you? Yeah, my name is Destiny Birdsong. I am
0: a writer who writes poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction. I am deeply interested in love, trauma, relationships between women, the place where I am from, I was born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, and it's a place that both (laughs) haunts me and fascinates me, and those are the things I write about.
1: That's great. And you, your debut poetry collection came out recently, uh, Negotiations. Yes, in October 2020,
0: Negotiations came
1: out. I love Negotiations. I have a signed copy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for buying it and reading it. Um, I love it.
0: I'm so glad. Yeah. It's a difficult book, but it's you know, it's my baby. So it, I'm always delighted and grateful when
1: people read it and and when they love it. Yeah. 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 Can you believe that when you found out you were going to have it published <laughs> that we <laughs> would be in a pandemic when it came out?
0: No. I you know, <laughs> I actually tried not to think about the future because It was so far off. My book got picked up in late July 2019. And for a while, for maybe about seven or eight months, I didn't have a date, a release date for it. I just knew that it would be in the fall of 2020. And that felt so far away that I just didn't, I just tried not to think about it actually. I was really focused on the editing process. I was also doing a number of other things. Like I was still working my job then. And so I was doing things related to that and also trying to find a new job. And I was working on another book, which is coming out in 2022. So I really didn't think much about what the debut would look like. And then in February when when it was clear that there was a pandemic and that it would be around for a while, I tried not to think much about it either because there were so many things that were still up in the air in early 2020. You know, it wasn't until the summer when I thought, "Oh, this isn't going to go away and it's going to change what my book release looks like." But it actually you know, it really turned into something beautiful. I had a book release party that I could not have had If the world had been open, you know, it was over Zoom. My family was there. So many of my friends and people I love. And it was just this really beautiful private experience that was perfect for me. But I didn't know that it would be perfect for me. And now I'm like, I want every book release to feel like this. Like, it's okay if there's a public one with people I don't know and people buying books. Like, that's what I want. But for every book now, I want a moment where I'm just surrounded by people I love who love the book because they love me and who are willing to celebrate with me in a very private and quiet way.
1: I'm so so glad you said that. God, I'm kind of emotional hearing you say that. (laughs) Um, I was going to ask like the normal question, what was it like to publish a book during the pandemic? I love that you now have this like reframing of what a release looks like because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. And I'm not one of those people trying to always silver line the pandemic. Like this is horrific and mm-hmm. all this sucks and it shouldn't mm-hmm. have been this bad. But I, agree. Um, I, I do love that you got something beautiful out of it that you wouldn't have thought to ask for or anticipate. And that now it kind of lays the groundwork for what you want with your next book.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. You know, I don't try to think of this time as a blessing in disguise. You know, I, I don't I just I don't I don't think about it that way, but It was a wonderful surprise. And, you know, what people were saying was just like horrible. You know, it's terrible to have a book come out right now. I didn't really have any frame of reference because this is my first book. So (laughs) I had nothing to compare it to, which I think is a fortunate thing because there were many ways that I just wasn't able to be disappointed because I just had nothing to compare it to. So God, that's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, and I I do think that there are debut writers who, who feel very differently than I do about that. But for me, it was just like, you know, this is the first time this has ever happened to me. So I don't really know what I'm missing. What I really tried to focus on was what was present and what was possible in that particular space. And that was really helpful for me i don't know for me it is not helpful to like spiral into what could have been like that's a dangerous space for me emotionally Man, and so i was
1: your therapist you were very emotionally <laughs> healthy <laughs> this is like high evolution of humanity right now what you're talking about congratulations
0: yeah yeah thank you i mean i just yeah it, that Thinking isn't always useful for me. So it was really important to focus on what was there. And what was there was really wonderful and like beautiful and revelatory. And I'm grateful for that in the midst of a really terrible time.
1: A really terrible time. One of the debut events you did, I was part of, The Porch had you do, I think it was their Birthing the Book series. Yes. So I heard you talk about the long and winding road to this book being born. (laughs) Yes, um, it was a long and winding road. How long and winding was that road? Well, I think,
0: you know, I believe in that adage that like, you know, your first piece of art, your first album, your first book, you've been writing your whole life. And so I do believe that there's sort of a part of that book. Even now, you know, I look at certain lines and certain turns of phrase and I can connect that to things In my childhood, like things I heard people say, lines to songs that I really love, things like that. But writing the book in earnest began in the summer of 2017. So maybe around like 2015, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to really try to devote my time to finishing this book. At the time, I presumed that my MFA thesis, which I finished in 2009, was going to be my first book like that that was just my presumptions. I was completely wrong, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a which is wonderful in the aftermath, but terrifying in the moment. And so I started working on those poems, but there were these new poems that were coming that were really dynamic and that didn't really look like what I had been writing in two thousand and nine, and they weren't supposed to because it was six years later. And you know, but I still sort of clung to the hope that, like, well, these are the poems that are going to supplement this thesis you know turned collection but it wasn't until 2017 i was sitting at a residency right outside chicago it's this place called ragdale oh, and yeah, yeah it's a beautiful place i was thinking about that place a few days ago like <laughs> it's like i saw no poor people in ragdale uh, um, well, <laughs> it was well, it's, it's lake forest right the city yeah. the town is called lake forest but and there were no poor people and every house looked like a church like it was that big. Like I would take walks, (laughs) I would take walks, like sort of like up the street from the residency. And it was, it was beautiful, but also terrifying. I'd never been that close to like that kind of wealth. It was, it was intense, but anyway, so I'm at Ragdale where nobody locks their doors (laughs) except (laughs) me. (laughs) And I'm sitting at my desk looking at a, it wasn't an Excel sheet, but it was sort of a word document where I'd created all these columns of like poems that I thought were really good and poems that I thought could use work and poems that I didn't think were going to work in the collection. And there were all kinds of poems there. There were poems from the thesis that I'd reworked. There were the new poems. There were poems I had written during my first 30-30, which is a challenge that poets will often undertake during April, which is National Poetry Month, where you write 30 poems in 30 days. And I'd just done my first one a few months before in April, 2020. So some of those poems were there. And I just realized that I was doing something very different from what I thought I was doing. I was doing something very different from that thesis work. And like, that's the moment when I started writing negotiations in earnest and the title poem was written at Ragdo because I was there during the Charlottesville riots. And that poem is a direct response to that. And once I wrote that poem, I knew that it was the title poem and I knew that that title was for a collection that was very new and that was separate and distinct from my pieces.
1: You know, in my mind, it's such a fast, seamless process that all writers, (laughs) all published writers... No, it's just so easy. And it's so fast. And I love that you have a spreadsheet, like you're speaking (laughs) right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I was determined to finish that book. And it's, again, it's one of those wonderful, but also terrifying experiences where you think you're moving in a very specific direction. And you realize halfway through that where you thought you were going is not where you're going at all but I credit the fact that I started the journey. You know what I mean? Like I had to start somewhere, even though I was starting with the presumption that I was going to a specific place. I, I, couldn't, have got, I couldn't have gotten to where I was if I hadn't started there, even though I was totally mistaken about where I would end up. And I say that to say that it is not a seamless process <laughs> <laughs> at all. Neither of my books are books that I had expected to write.
1: Um, okay. So, yeah. I love that in the back of your book, you go in the very, very back, You, it's, I don't know what it's called. It's not an index, but you go poem by poem mm-hmm. and list like your influences and things you pulled from. Mm-hmm. And a minute ago, you mentioned like favorite songs. And there's a poem in here where you talk about Johnny Gill's Rub You the Right Way in the back. Yeah. I love That's that one song. of my favorite songs.
0: <laughs> I still listen to it. It's, I do it's too. It- Yeah. There's such nostalgia there for me. I just remember being a kid in Louisiana in the summertime when you're outside and it's hot (laughs) and you know, you hear that song on the radio or you hear it coming from a car and it's just, yeah, yeah. I
1: do love that song. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. Cardi B in here. I Mm -hmm. love the poem with Cardi B. I've never seen in the back of a poetry book, what yours has. And I was so, I would love that all the time. I would love a little blurb poem by poem mm-hmm. about like this was inspired by this first line is from yeah you know I think it's the researcher in me that's really invested in you know source
0: citations I do think it's important for me anyway to remember that I am always in conversation sometimes in in ways that I didn't necessarily identify when I first wrote the thing but I am always in conversation with the art that I took in as a child with the things that I have read with the things that I am reading with the people with whom I'm having conversations, you know, some of those poems, particularly I'm thinking of love poem with Stockholm, Mm -hmm. were only possible because I was having conversations with my friends, and they were recommending poems. And, you know, it's just important for me to contextualize the work in that way. And even so, like, there's some moments when I'm like, oh, wait, there's that specific line that I, that I think may have been influenced by this thing. Um, but the wonderful thing for me about writing is that there there are those moments of surprise when when I'm being influenced by things that I didn't even recognize when I wrote the piece. Like, it may be weeks, months, years later that I realize, oh, you know... That's actually kind of reminiscent of, of this particular thing I read or I heard or, you know, this particular conversation I had. But I definitely try to do as much of that as I can, especially yeah. in poetry. I love so, Yes. Yeah, and sometimes I think people think that poetry is just this thing that sort of like springs Out of the poet fully formed without a lot of like work or, you know, like without a lot of forethought or intention. And I think the notes section is working against that too, against that presumption that poetry is just this thing that you can kind of do in your free time. I know people do it, but that's not the kind of poetry I do. I am deeply engaged in the work and it is work. (laughs) You know, it's not. It's not play for me. And I don't mean to sound like play is not an important part of poetry or that people cannot engage in poetry as a form of play. But for me, it is a serious endeavor. It is a highly researched endeavor. It is, it is an intentional endeavor. For me, the notes sort of
1: shed a little light on that on that process. Man, I'm very glad to hear you explain that. I don't know a ton about poetry. I'm newer to it last, I don't know, five, 10 years, but I didn't grow up reading it, but I've never written poetry. I write creative nonfiction and I, I can't imagine the skill needed to, I couldn't write a poem. Like there's no way, like, (laughs) but the skill required to write poetry and to write the kind of poetry you like that you said, you know, is in conversation with all of these other poets and pieces of work and songs and, I wonder how many people know the difference between writing poetry, writing fiction, writing creative nonfiction. It's something I'm I'm learning about myself.
0: Yeah, people often ask the, que- the question, because I write in all of those genres, people are often curious about like, well, how do you know a piece of writing is a poem? And how do you know a piece of writing is a piece of fiction? And so on and so forth. And I don't have clear answers to that either. You know, I do think that there is a part of the process that for me is very mystical and kind of divine and and in that way, separate and distinct from the intentionality that comes with being in that conversation and documenting those conversations. So I, I don't know if I could answer that question either, even as a person who works in all three of those forms. I do think that I go in the direction that I'm pushed or that I'm, well, nudged, I think is a better word, gently nudged. And leaving room for play, I think, is really important as a writer. It may be better said this way: leaving room for flexibility, for amb- ambidexterity, right? Like leaving room for what could be possible. So, for you, you know, you like, I can never write a poem, but the the truth is that you you could, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> be uh, careful. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, like you could, right? Like it's possible. Now, is it possible for you to write the kind of poems you want to write? Yes. But that, but that would take work, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, Um, yes. It would take a lot of work.
0: Yeah. And so I think being open to those possibilities, but also being committed to the work of doing it well, which I still don't have this like wonderful cheat sheet for. I think every book requires something very different from you. And every genre requires something different from you, right? But it gets more specific, you know, the genre requires things, the book requires things, the The piece in the book requires things, right? And I think being able to sort of whittle yourself down to those tasks is what makes that ambidexterity possible, sort of figuring out what that particular piece needs and being willing to do it. And sometimes, you know, people aren't willing to do it because there's a lot of work. It's, it's hard. <laughs> like, I have been exhausted for the past few months because I've been working on my second book and it's a kind of exhaustion I've never experienced before. Like not really? every Yeah, not in grad school, not as... A waitress, you know, while who was also working her way through college. Like I've never been this exhausted in my life.
1: What do you think (laughs) is different now?
0: I mean, it may be age. You know, I'm older than I was when I was doing those things. What I believe it is, though, is that you know, the farther one goes in her work, I think the higher the stakes and the more that is required to do a new thing to do an interesting thing to do an honest thing. And I think that that is part and parcel of what it is. I mean, there are all these other external factors, like I'm writing a book in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Um, I am writing full time for the first time in my life. And that is freaking terrifying. I am single at a time when I don't think me or my body expected to be (laughs) like, um, I, I think there are all these external factors too, but I, I also think that again, you know, neither of my books are books that I expected to write. And I think that, that, that too is a, there's a learning curve there. There's an adjustment for that for doing the thing that you didn't expect to do sometimes because I was just too scared to do it I'm like I don't want to talk about that <laughs> and mm. having to build yeah and then having to build the courage to have that conversation is its own work
1: yeah I've written bring- about something super personal and and workshopped it and received not kind feedback always from oh man white guys with right man. Workshop, <laughs> M- MFA work- guys mm.
0: I Workshops can't. are violent
1: spaces. They can they, be. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I, that, I don't have an MFA. So I'm not familiar with that level of like tenacity and aggression.
0: Um, yeah.
1: Well, let not- me, let me. Yeah, well, I don't mean to interrupt you, but let me just say really
0: quickly that a lot of academics conflate rigor with rudeness. And those are two separate and distinct things. And they do not have to happen together, but they often do. (laughs) And so please don't be misled that the level of violence that may have happened in, in that particular space with you. Don't confuse that with rigor. Rigor can
1: happen without all of that stuff. God, I'm so glad you made that distinction. It's an important distinction. It is an important distinction. And everyone talks about MFA discourse is huge. I mean, everyone talks about you need one, you don't need one. Here's what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Well, ha- I mean, it's it's everywhere. But what you just said, I have never heard. And that's very helpful.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know... And yeah, like like that debate's gonna continue
1: probably oh, forever.
0: And forever. Yeah. But I will say that in my personal experience, that my MFA set a really strong foundation for the kind of writer I became. But I also had to unlearn a lot of stuff in the years, you know, it was 10 years between my MFA and my book getting picked up and those were 10 necessary years, I had to unlearn some things. I had to become the writer that I was supposed to be because the, the MFA is not an oven where you sort of mix all the ingredients and you put the cake in the oven and like, boom, 45 minutes later, there's a poet. Like, that's not <laughs> how that works. But you, you know. think it is. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And it's the sort of legitimizing process. But I think, you know, the danger of believing that is that, you then go into that space and you accept things like violence in a workshop and you expect things like rudeness disguised as rigor and you presume that that is somehow making you better and it's
1: not, it's just not helpful. No, no it, <laughs> any stretch it shut of me message. down. I mean, it, I haven't worked on that piece in almost a year. It, it shut it down. I think sometimes that's the function of that kind of rudeness, right? <laughs> and I think, yeah, and
0: it infuriates me because- it silences so many interesting voices and so many important narratives, and it keeps the canon white and male and wealthy, yes. and that's so
1: freaking boring. There's, <laughs> yeah, no more. Hey, <laughs> right. oh yeah. Roxanne Gay came here for an event, I think, on hunger. So, mm-hmm. what year that was? I might have been at that event. I feel like it was the one at Blair. It was at Vanderbilt. Yep. Yeah. So you will remember that she said that she just wishes all white men would just not talk for one year. Just one year. Just nothing. <laughs> and she she was in conversation with Ann Patchett and Roxanne went, Shh. and she said, just one year. Just nothing. We don't want to hear <laughs> I think about that 10 times a day, every day. Mm. Just, yeah. They just all just shut up. Yeah. You know. They're not
0: our only problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mind their talking. I just wish that they were more willing to engage in conversations yes. than just like talking over
1: people, right? Yes. And talking There's- in place of people. God. There's some <laughs> old saying, proverb, I don't know where it comes from, but you can't mm-hmm. listen while you're talking.
0: No, you can't. You can't. Like, <laughs> you know, when you're thinking of the... And it's so true when I'm in arguments with people, and I am thinking of the next thing I'm gonna say when they stop talking. I'm not hearing them. I'm crafting my response, right? 100%. And so yeah, of course. No, you can't hear.
1: No. I'm curious what little uh Shreveport Destiny was doing. Were you writing, mm-hmm. were you writing as a little girl? Were you writing poems or stories as a little girl?
0: Um, I definitely wrote a few stories. My mom has this little like paper booklet that I put together. I was in a program called Discoveries. It was kind of like you had your rego-dego kids. You had the gateway kids who were like like the precursor for GT and AP stuff. And then somewhere in the middle was Discoveries. I was in Discoveries. (laughs) And so in Discoveries, I made a book. Uh, It was a fable called Why Snakes Are Poisonous. And my mom still has that book. So I was definitely writing things as a kid. In the fifth grade, I wrote the essay that got read at like the fifth grade graduation where I talked about my elementary school career and my precocious nature as a child. (laughs) Um, It wasn't until maybe the seventh grade when I started writing poetry. There's this really specific moment where I was watching Batman the cartoon. That was one of my jams in this sort of string of after-school cartoons, Tiny Toon Adventures, Animaniacs, Batman. And in this particular episode, Batman goes to this sort of Dr. Moreau-esque island where there are these anthropomorphic beasts inhabiting the island. And one of them was a half-canther, half-man. And Batman kept quoting the lines of what I didn't know at the time was William Blake's The Tiger, 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 Burning Bright in the Forest of the Night. And I remember that episode, and shortly after that episode, writing a poem called I am the fire. And that was sort of like my first, at least that I remember like intentional foray into poetry. So yeah, I mean, as a kid, I was definitely interested in books. I had things that I loved. I loved Ramona Quimby, RIP Beverly Cleary. Yeah. Yeah. I I love Ramona. I love Ramona. I loved Rigsby. I don't remember yes. what his owner's name was, but <laughs> I loved Rigsby. I loved Judy Bloom. Uh yes. then again, maybe I won't which I don't know how I got my hands on that book, but <laughs> that was my know. first exposure to masturbation and you know, like yes. um yes 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 and and also identity because uh what's his name tony miglione he was like this italian kid in this white neighborhood which i didn't necessarily know sort of the intricacies of that identity yeah same. in juxtaposition with you know sort of like wasp whiteness right but i definitely understood that his family was different and he had, he had anxieties about that um i love mrs piggle wiggle which was this oh lady oh my god
1: yeah oh you
0: know her yes oh um, my god and the, Yes. The upside down chandelier in her house. Yes. <laughs> her I forgot forgotten Lester. about that
1: till just this second.
0: Oh, I love, the pig Lester. Oh my gosh. I love that series. I loved, what was the other one I was thinking of? It was like the fourth grade w- wizards. Nothing's fair know. in the fifth grade. Okay. I think- Colleen O'Shaughnessy McKenna, I think was her name, but it was like this group of kids. They all went to elementary school together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I love, I love the babysitters club. Oh. You know, I, yeah. yeah, I, I loved books. I really did. The <laughs> There's this very specific story. So my mother was old school, which means she was very heavy handed and all oh man. So my mom had another kid when I was 17 and the generational differences between the two groups, because I was I was raised with my sister. We're, we're two years apart. And then my brother came when I was 17 and my sister was 19. And the level of discipline he got compared to what we got is just like night and day. So my <laughs> mom was, was she was heavy handed. Like she, she she would get you. But yes. the one the one time that I did something that would have normally been punishable <laughs> corporally. I did not get punished because she figured out what I was doing. So one day I burned a hole in my mattress. We had these bunk beds and the the mattresses were made out of foam and I burned a hole in the mattress. But the way I burned the hole in the mattress is that late at night when everyone was sleeping, I would take the lamp. I would take the lamp shade off and I would stick the lamp Mm -hmm. under my covers so I could read. And so the light bulb was what burned. It was like a perfect little circle. (laughs) I had, been, had burned through the sheet. I, I mean, thank God it didn't catch on fire. But she figured out that that's what I was doing. And so I didn't get in trouble for that. And I don't even know if I was if she she was like, you know, you got to start going to bed because I I've always been a night owl. I would stay up late and read those books because I just couldn't put them down. So. So, yeah, that was definitely a part of of who I was, you know, and I think I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. It's interesting. I think a lot of that was certainly circumstantial. Like we didn't have a lot of money. I, I wasn't in like gymnastics or ballet or softball or any of that stuff.
1: But books were free. You could get books God, from the library. I have yeah. not thought about that. I didn't I didn't have that stuff either. And also like I'm a little – I was born in the 70s. There wasn't mm-hmm. a ton of that stuff yet. And mm-hmm. I lived in a real small rural town in Oklahoma. There was nothing. I, there wasn't a dance studio. There was nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just read.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was free entertainment and it was, it was interesting entertainment. Um, but I also have to attribute my leaning into artistry. Like I come from a long line of like family artists, you know? Really? Um, okay. Yeah. My mom is really handy. She makes these really beautiful baskets. When I was a kid, she used to make hair bows, and t-shirts, my great-grandmother, I have this really distinct memory of being a kid, and I don't even know why I did this, but I was eavesdropping on the phone, and on the phone were my mother, my great-grandmother, and one of my mom's friends. And my great-grandmother, which, I mean, I can't go into her biography, but just know that this is this is very ironic. <laughs> my great-grandmother is extemporaneously writing a church speech for my mom's friend. And so I, I remember like holding the phone to my ear and my great grandmother is just talking and she's just talking out this really beautiful speech and everyone else on the phone is silent. You know, my mom is listening. My mom's friend is writing it down because this is for her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I, I have that really distinct memory and I think I held on to it because it was a defining moment for me. You know, that was, that's a part of my lineage. My Relationship to my great grandmother is really complicated. When <laughs> when I feel the ancestors near me, I'm like everybody but you, girl. You gotta <laughs> go because <laughs> um, she has done some some stuff. But you know, like it or not, like that's also a part of what influenced me as a writer. I have cousins and uncles who can play instruments by ear. Yeah, just sort of you give it to them, you give them a few hours or a few days, and they got it nailed down. So. I think that too is, yeah, I think there's certainly a genetic and a familial component to artistry. And I really was fortunate to be surrounded by people like that who could just do these really amazing things that certainly seemed like gifts. You know, they didn't necessarily have formal training or any of that stuff. It yeah. just came and they and they used those things to make the world around them beautiful.
1: So that. you list so many family members in your acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. How proud are they of you? Was this hard for them to read or did they just love that you made it?
0: (laughs) You know, I have no idea. Uh, Well, I I do have some idea. I do think that they are really proud that I made it. I gave a bunch of people that book. No one has ever talked to me about the book (laughs) at all. I will say that that is not atypical in my family. There are lots of silences that also influenced why I became a writer. The page was sort of a safe space where I could like map out these questions to things I was afraid to ask because I knew that there were things that we didn't talk about. And so, yeah, no one has ever had a conversation with me about the book. I'm not quite sure if they have read it. I'm not quite sure if my mom has read it, but my mom like gave it to our pastor, which... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, good grief. I think about him often, poor guy.
1: (laughs) That's such a mom move also.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I don't know, I didn't ask her if she thought about the content before she gave it to him, but she did kind of say something that makes me think maybe she read it because when she said that to me, I was just like, oh, good luck with that. And she said, (laughs) oh, well, she's like, well, you're a writer. Like, it's your job to like write these things down and you shouldn't be ashamed of that. That's just, it is what it is. And I was like, oh. Good grief. Like, I, that's a really profound thing to say. And so I, I think maybe she read it. But, hey, but, you know, because the page for me has always been like my safe space, separate and distinct from those family conversations that may or may not have made room for my questions and the things I was thinking about. I actually am okay if nobody has ever read that book and does not want to talk to me about it. Like, I, I'm i okay with that. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think they are generally proud. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a private and, and sometimes a space that I feel a great deal of selfishness about, I think. And so I, I don't mind that people are not necessarily willing to enter that space with me because it's always been a space that I've really wanted to keep safe. And it's not to say that my family isn't safe, but it is to say that their entrance might make me a little less comfortable than what I'm used to.
1: Yeah, so, no, I I get yeah. that. I guess yeah. That. Lady Lynn listeners, have I got a deal for you. LOL. But seriously, I have a deal for you. Libro FM is the first and only company that lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your local independent bookstore. And guess what? We have two of those here in Nashville. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your completely unstructured life. Listen during your commute to your living room while doing chores, walking the dog, petting the cat, or relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free LibroFM app. Ladyland special offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one, that's 14 dollars with your first month of membership using the code Ladyland at checkout. It's really easy. You said something that was so helpful for me to hear. I think you said it during the porch interview. You Mm -hmm. said the first draft is creativity and the Mm -hmm. second draft is craft. Yes. People have said versions of that, but the way that you said it was the first time it landed. I have a really hard time. I edit and draft at the same time, which I think is very common, but I'll Mm -hmm. type out a paragraph and then I go back and mess with it. And then the flow stops. Mm -hmm. So when you said that, I was like, oh, that's it. That's the trick. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't take credit for that. That was, um, that's a quote from
0: Cornelius Eady, who's who's one of my teachers. He's one of the co-founders of Cave Canem, which is a fellowship program for Black poets, of which I am a graduate fellow. So yeah, that's from him. But it it was helpful for me too because I was a horrible self-editor. You know, I think that's one of the things I had to unlearn from being in my MFA. And I don't think anybody ever taught me that. I, I do think that I was not untaught that, right? And so I had to yes. do that unteaching in the years between my MFA and my first book. And that's not, that's not to disparage my teachers. I think that that's a thing that you have to be ready to be untaught. And Ooh, I, I didn't think about that. Yeah. And I was not ready. Yeah. Because, no, I wasn't you know, ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for because for me, a lot of that self-editing is about shame. Right. And it's about like, I don't know if I, if I want to say this, I don't know if this is a thing that I can say or that I should say. So that's what it is for me. And so I had to unlearn the shame surrounding telling. You know, so you
1: just blew my mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that took time. That took time and determination, really. And a determination that was self-motivated. It had to be and it has to be no matter how many mentors you have or how many teachers you have to be ready to break that silence on your own. And I wish I could tell you how to do it. (laughs) It was a circuitous journey for me.
1: I also want to ask you, I've heard you talk about this. And then also just online, you talk about rejection, (laughs) transparency rejection. And you were one of the first people I've seen really, really grab hold of this and talk about it. And it's so helpful Mm -hmm. to know that someone like you, who I admire and look up to, and like, you're for sure a role model. And I'm like, wait, people have told you no. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I get no all the time. Please, please tell me about people saying no to you. Yeah,
0: well, you know, I stand by what I said online, which is that every rejection that I can think of in recent memory has been one that either like protected me from something or made the way for some bigger opportunity that I had no idea was even possible until that thing that I wanted got moved out of the way you know and there's certainly a religious component to that for me (laughs) I'm a practicing Christian not the kind of Christian who thinks Lil Nas X is going to hell for the video (laughs) I just want to clarify that you read my mind not that kind Um, but there's a bible verse I can't remember where it is but it's like all things work together for the good of them who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. I think writing is a calling for me. I think it's the thing that I was put here to do. It's the thing I'm the most interested in. It makes me feel the most useful. That's my thing. So in the context of that belief, when I think about the things that have happened in my writing life, so many of them have, have somehow sort of worked together for my good. The biggest example I can think of is in the summer of 2019, And these things were happening at the exact same time. I was interviewing for a job I really wanted at an organization that I deeply believe in, whose work I think is really important. And I wanted that job. But I also knew that it would be a hard job. You know, I spoke to the outgoing person in the position I was applying for. And she talked about how extremely difficult it was those first few months when she was on the job. And I knew that. And I was dedicated to that. and I. Went through like three rounds of interviews. I submitted rec letters. I did all kinds of things and I did not get that job. And I was devastated for so many reasons. But the same week that I was going through the interview process, I was also in Utah grading high school AP exams. And that work is... (laughs) It's difficult. (laughs) Um, It is highly regimented. You know, they like ring a bell and you go to lunch. They ring a bell, you go to break. You have this many minutes to do this and that. The other thing, your pace is kind of clocked. You know, your work is back checked. It's just, it's intense. And I was having a conversation with one of my friends and I said to her, wouldn't it be wild if somebody just lost it in here and like started like ripping up tests or like destroying property. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I thought that's interesting. And when I got home, um, I was literally interviewing for that job while I was in Salt Lake city. Like I was like spending my lunch in interviews. And when I got home, something was like, you should write about that. You should write about that. And I was like, eh, you know, I had a a novel and story manuscript that I had been kind of shopping around and also had my book that hadn't been picked up yet. It wouldn't get picked up until a little later in the summer. And I just presumed that, you know, that that was not what I was supposed to be doing. But that thing kept sort of like tapping me on the shoulder. And I decided to write that short story. Well, several hundred pages later, like that, that's my next book. And that book would not have been possible if I got that job. It absolutely would not have been possible. I literally spoke to one of the employees at the organization who said, I have not written in years. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so when I think about the timing of that, I'm like, OMG. You know, I was writing my future as I was being rejected. From the thing that I thought was my future. And in that way, I try to look at rejections in the larger sense. You know, what do they make room for? What do they protect me from? Because I'll be honest with you, I am not a healthy or a happy person when I cannot write. Like it is intricately interconnected with my emotional health. And if I were prevented from doing it, I do not know how emotionally well I would be. But also I needed that book. (laughs) I needed my advance, you know, and I needed to write that book. The book is about, it's a triptych novel. All three of the main characters are women with albinism. They all either live in or have connections to my hometown. So it is such a huge part of my identity that I needed to map out on the page. So I needed it for so many things And had no idea that in that little space in June 2019, that I was building the thing I was building. You know, I thought I was going to get that job and I was going to move, you know, to a wonderful new city. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I was going to have some experiences and I was going to work this job. And it turned out not to be the thing. But I'll tell you, I write full time now and it's really precarious and it's kind of terrifying, But I am the happiest I have been in my adult life.
1: Like so happy to hear that.
0: Yeah, like full stop. Full stop. As stressful as it is, as exhausted as I am, I am the happiest I've ever been. Because every day I get I get to wake up and I get to write. And I would not trade that for anything.
1: That's the dream. So you have a new column with catapult, right? Yes. And it's called Home Girl Health. I don't know if we say home slash girl slash slash health. health. I think either way is fine. Okay. Home Girl Health. The first one came out in February and Mm -hmm. it was called Surviving Karen Medicine. Yes. What was the reception to that piece? It was
0: overwhelmingly positive, at least as far as I know. You know, I don't know how. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Every person who read it felt there was a moment, there was a woman online who was upset by the title. Um, Really? Yeah. But, you know, her response to it really speaks to, I think, all of the issues that are, you know, Karen specific, actually. Right. Like there was like she was upset with the title and then she went on to sort of center herself in this conversation about all the things that she had done to sort of advance racial equality and like all of the people that she knew that were like healthcare workers. And the the thing is, is that there's a really specific moment in the essay where I say, you know, if this pandemic has taught us nothing is that we need healthcare workers. I am here because of healthcare workers. I benefit from the work of healthcare workers. I benefit from the work of white women, healthcare workers. My therapist is a white woman and she is, her mom is Danish. <laughs> like, she is white <laughs> and she <Yeah>. is phenomenal. <laughs> like, right? Like, she is phenomenal at what she does, but she is present. She asks questions. She is transparent about what she knows and what she doesn't know. You know what I mean? Like, those are the kinds of healthcare workers we need. And if you are a white woman and you are that kind of healthcare worker, that essay was not directed towards you, right?
1: No, and actually, if you don't, I, I should have given like a synopsis of what that essay was about. Will you, Sure. what's it like to navigate the healthcare system <laughs> as a Black woman?
0: It's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I have had experiences where I was just not listened to. I've had experiences where I was treated like a problem, where I was sort of demonized for being frustrated for being angry. And you know, I am not, (laughs) I know this much about myself, but like my quiet angry is scary enough. (laughs) Like I don't have to do a whole lot of other stuff. I could just be mad and people are like, oh, she's mad. So like, I am not sort of like a throwing papers across the room kind of angry, you know, my kind of anger, I'm very still, I'm very quiet, but I'm also very honest, right? And I'm very deliberate about what I say. So this isn't the kind of demonization where it's like, oh, she's like pushing things out of the way and throwing things across the room. It's just like, oh, she's angry. That's a problem. Right. Instead of asking, what is she angry about? Oh, she's angry that her illness is not being treated. The illness is the problem and the treatment is the problem. Let's address that. You know, so much of that has happened in a really short period of time, like. I knew that medical racism was a thing. You know, I wrote my dissertation on mother-daughter relationships in Black women's literature. And part of my dissertation was about Black maternal mortality rates in the U.S., right? So I knew cognitively that this was a thing. But experientially, it's a totally different experience. And it's terrifying when you're sick and you need help. And the people who have sworn to help you are not being helpful, And not only like not being helpful, but in some ways being detrimental to your health. And so that's a really difficult thing to navigate. And I think race plays a factor. I think the trouble of the angry Black woman is still very much alive and well, and it operates in really devastating ways in the medical field. I think that the smart Black woman (laughs) is often pathologized. Um,
1: Tell me more about the smart Black woman.
0: Well, I think that, you know, I mean, the essay opens with my interaction with a dietician
1: who had heard someone
0: refer to me as Dr. Birdsong and I think was completely undone by that. And felt insecurities that I knew nothing about, right? Like, I suspect that she you know, had been treated differently by people who, you know, maybe had what they considered were better degrees, people who were who were medical doctors as opposed to like dietitians or nutritionists or whatever. But she brought all of that stuff into the room to a person who was very sick and who honestly just didn't give a damn about any of that stuff, who just wanted help, right? And because she brought all of that stuff in the room, my autonomy was seen as a threat. My desire for autonomy was seen as a threat. When I asked, you know, are there other things I can drink besides like fucking Gatorade? I have a history of high blood pressure. Like you want me to drink something full of salt? Cool, cool, cool. Right? (laughs) Um, Yes. Like, you know, like those things were seen as threats to her body of knowledge and they weren't intended that way. It's like, I have the right to decide what I put in my body. Right? Yes. Yeah. That's still my right. Yes. You know. Yeah. The short answer is that it is hard. And that's what that essay is about. Um, But that essay is also about the wonder of good healthcare professionals. You know, I got a skin biopsy because a resident wrote a letter to my dermatologist saying like, you guys need to figure out what's going on, you know?
1: Yeah. Did you also get messages from women or not even women, but did you also get Mm -hmm. messages of just like, Thank you. This sucks so much. And I'm glad oh, absolutely. you're talking about it. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. I got messages from people with autoimmune diseases. I got messages from people with Crohn's disease specifically, which is what I was diagnosed with, particularly Black women, but also all kinds of women who are like, yeah, this has happened to me. Like, yeah, you know, I thank you for writing this. I, I have been through this or something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the the tragedy of, of not talking about these things or like the potential of not talking about these things is that, you know, I would often leave those spaces thinking something was wrong with me, that I was crazy or I was overreacting. But I look back on those months, particularly the months when I had the skin issues and just how bad it was, And I was like, I don't know who could have looked at me and my skin and somehow thought that my frustration was a problem that went on for months. I I have pictures of it like it was horrible. The fact that I would leave those spaces thinking that I was the problem just blows my mind. But I did because I thought that this was just specific to me. And it's funny because after I wrote the essay, I Googled, you know, the skin issues and the, when the drug I was on and there've been papers published about it now. It's, it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't just me. It wasn't, you know, another autoimmune disease. Like one of my doctors tried to tell me it was a real
1: thing. It was a real thing that was happening to my body. When does your next piece come out with with Catapult? Well,
0: right now it's with the editor. We'd originally said early April but I'm really excited about it. It's about friendships. Um, One of the other kind of wild things that happened during the pandemic is that my best friendship, which was 18 years old, ended very abruptly. I'm sorry. It's okay. You know, I think that... It's a real grief, though. That's a real loss. Oh, it is. Absolutely. But I also, again, you know, and this is sort of a faith-based belief, (laughs) <laughs> there's this wonderful scripture that I often quote to my friends when, you know, like when we're ending these really intense relationships, but there's a scripture, about it's actually about churches, like about like people who had like left a certain church, but it's uh, like they went out from us so that it could be made clear that they were not for us because had they been for us, they would have continued with us. Right. And I do believe that I believe that if people can walk out of your life, it's because they were not meant to be in your life a day longer than what they were. So I mourn that friendship, but I also feel like its end was, I don't know if if inevitable is the right word, but I did see it coming and I do understand why it happened and I deeply respect my former friend and I do not believe in, I do not believe in chasing people down. (laughs) I do not believe in begging people to come back. That is another kind of emotional trauma that I have been through and I refuse to do again. And so, yeah, like it—it it is sad, but again, like I rest in the reassurance that had it been meant to last, it would have lasted,
1: you know. On that note, yeah. I'm going to let you go, but I want to ask you one last question. Sure. You are embedded here in the Nashville writing community and you have great friends. What mm-hmm. Nashville writers should we be following and looking out for?
0: Um, the first one that comes to mind for me is Joshua Moore. Amazing producer, great poet, great screenwriter. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, I've been reading some of the work behind the scenes. I feel really privileged to do that. And I think, yeah, that's the person I would be watching.
1: Joshua. Um,
0: Yeah, absolutely. I saw this writer recently, Carrie French, who lives in Murfreesboro. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a phenomenal writer. You know, I remember watching her for the first time at, like, an open mic, and I said to myself, whatever, like, it is, you know, whatever the it factor is, like, she's got it. I think her book was phenomenal. I am hopeful that she publishes another one. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if she's working on one or not, but yeah, I I think that those are writers that really come to mind. I have a friend, Lisa Dordal, who has another book coming out, also a phenomenal
1: poet, you know the right people Yeah. (laughs) when does your your new book come out?
0: February of 2022 I don't have the exact date but most books come out on Tuesdays so they're like four possible dates I don't know which one it is but yeah (laughs) we'll do this again
1: in March 2022
0: oh absolutely I'd be happy to
1: Destiny thank you so much for doing this I really appreciate it thank you it's been a lot of fun I'm Kim Baldwin and that's our show thanks so much for joining us To find full show notes, head over to ladyland.show. And if you know a lady that I need to meet, slip into my DMs. You can find me at ladyland underscore podcast on Instagram. This podcast is produced by Mary Catherine Rooker and brought to you by We Own This Town. Logo by Elizabeth Williams. Music by U-Drive. Download anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a minute, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review Ladyland. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.